Good morning. My name is Amanda Bryan. I am the Publications Manager at Teaching American History. Welcome to our April episode of this year's Saturday webinar series, American Controversies. By bringing together thoughtful scholars with differing points of view, we hope to have a discussion about historically important issues that still resonate in the current classroom. We encourage all of you to joining us today to participate in that conversation by submitting questions via the Q&A box, not the chat box, the Q&A box, and we will try to get to as many as possible. Within the next week, you will receive an email with links for further reading, as well as a link to the recorded podcast for today's program. In the registration form, we have linked to the speeches, the letters, the, all the other writings that we're using for today's conversation. Many of them are also available at the Teaching American History's extensive document database located at tah.org or in our core document collection. Today, we will be discussing, has modern government destroyed the separation of powers? Joining me on our panel is David Alvis, honored visiting graduate faculty at Wolford College, as well as Joe Postel, honored visiting graduate faculty at Hillsdale College. Both are also faculty members in Ashland University's master's program, and they are also co-editors of an upcoming volume from Teaching American History on the separation of powers. So here today to talk about their work are these two gentlemen. Welcome. It's lovely to see you. Thanks for having me, Amanda. We appreciate you having us. Thank you. And we also have Jason Stevens joining us. Jason is our normal moderator. We are so happy he was able to join us. And he is a professor at the university at Ashland University. Jason, so glad you were able to join us from the wilds of Florida. Yes, Amanda, thank you so much. Uh, sorry for the technical difficulties, but I, I, I am connected here. I'm not sure how good the connection is, uh, but we're going to try to make the best of this. Thank you for, uh, for being for your patience. <laughs> no problem. And uh, we'll uh, keep an eye on that connection and hope that it continues to function. With that, I will turn the conversation over to you three gentlemen. All right. We want to start. Let's see. I tell you what. How about we start by we're going to start by talking a little bit about our um, the, Joe and I are going to talk a little bit about our book on the um, separation of powers right, uh, coming out with Ashland, which we're very proud of. These, the the these collection of core documents have been uh, a fantastic, I think, addition um, to the teaching resources. Uh, throughout the country, um, both for secondary educators, but also, too, we use a lot of these texts in, uh, at the college level. Um, I think this text will be particularly uh, useful um, to those who are teaching uh, American, American history, American government, uh, and uh, also, too, right, to number of college students, right, who are taking uh, foundations of uh, uh, sort of inter introduction to American politics. Um, it's been a great project uh, to work on. We're very, pr very proud of the work uh, that we've accomplished in this. And just to give you a kind of an overall sense of the book that these documents you have to for today are part of. So it's a um, it was a collection of <clears throat> primary documents uh, geared towards the debates over uh, the roles of the different branches of uh, of American government uh, as they've come into conflict uh, over the course of American history. 
and they can be uh, they can be organized chronologically, but they can also be organized uh, thematically. Um, so if you organize the book thematically, uh, we have a section. We have uh, uh, documents uh, pertaining to the concept of the separation of powers as it as it emerges from the American founding. Uh, the role of the legislative branch in the separation of powers, role of the executive branch in the separation of powers, and then uh, documents pertaining to the role of the courts. And so the collection, I think, is particularly good because not only does it trace the chronology of these debates, um, but it also, too, looks at the um, uh, at the different branches, right, as they struggle to understand their place within uh, our system of government. In The Federalists, you have a very famous line from James Madison, where Madison says, right, there can be no uh, perfect science, right, uh, of the separation of powers. So while we can easily conceive how the branches should be uh, separated in theory, in practice, that turns out to be very complicated and something that's been worked out over the course of American history. And this volume, I think, does a great job of capturing those debates and how that, uh, how that uh, concept has emerged over the course of American politics. Yeah, just to maybe just say a little bit more about what David just said about the book. Um, I like that the, the the collection focuses a lot on conflict between the branches. Um, and rather than just sort of laying out the basic textbook case from the Federalist Papers about the separation of powers, the book starts with that textbook case, but then gets into a whole bunch of contemporary questions that really are very relevant to understanding how modern government works today. Things like the legislative veto, the delegation of legislative power to administrative agencies, uh, the removal power, which is something that David has written a lot about. And so really, I think the nice aspect of this collection is that it balances theory and it balances the constitutional debates and contemporary questions. And so it can be a really nice uh, way of teaching students how government actually works in light of the principles that you see in the constitutional debate over the separation of powers. Yeah, I think in some ways, right, you can see all of these debates over the course of American history as sort of playing, I mean, Joe, would it be correct to say, it's sort of playing out, right, the discussion of checks and balances in Federalist 51. Yeah, which I have, you know, it's, uh, once we get to Federalist 51, I have some uh, sort of con uh, controversial things to say about that essay, and then I don't, I, I'm wondering if you're going to uh, have r real problems or real issues with what I have to say about it. But yeah, I think that essay is the key essay, really, about the separation of powers. And most of what we have following Federalist 51 is sort of the the real implementation of the theory in in 51. Yeah, I do, I do want to point out, right, how routinely irreverent Joe is, right? Will, he's willing to disagree at any point with the Federalist Papers, which is, you know, just a sign of his impiety when it comes to <laughs> politics. Oh, Joe, what, say, what's your quibble with Federalist 51? Yeah, okay, so um, I'll say this uh, as like a prelude. Um, Federalist 51, we cut off the most important paragraph right at the place where I think it gets controversial. And so, um, you know, if you look in, in the sort of brief reading packet we put together, um, the I guess this is the second page, it looks like, um, where, you know, Madison says uh, in Republican government, the legislative authority necessarily predominates. So one of the interesting things about that, that paragraph is that it shows what the real problem is with the separation of powers, and that is Congress. 
right? Most people, I mean, sort of this is the way it's often taught in history and government courses is that the framers of the Constitution feared executive power, that the American Revolution was a revolution against executive power. And so, uh, you know, our system is built to prevent executive power from getting, you know, sort of out of hand. And I actually think when you read Federalist 48 and 51, it's pretty clear that they're much more worried about the legislative power than the executive power. So, so I always, when I teach this part of the of Federalist 51, I have my students, before we even get into the text, draw the, the triangle. We all know what the triangle is, right? There's the L, the E, and the J, and then you draw the little arrows back and forth, right? There's the veto, judicial review, all this sort of thing. And then you read this paragraph, right? And Madison says, the legislative authority necessarily predominates. The remedy for this uh, inconveniency is to divide the legislature into two different branches, and render them by different modes of election and different principles of action as little connected with each other as the nature of their common functions would admit. Okay, so bicameralism is the first thing you do to prevent this uh, this legislative predominance. And then, of course, you fortify the executive with the veto power. And then we cut it off right there. Yeah. Um, but the rest of that paragraph is actually quite fascinating. So Madison says... Um, that uh, we could have given the president an absolute negative, that is an absolute veto, kind of like the king had in the British system, right? If the king vetoed something, there was no congressional override. And he says, you know, the problem with that is you can either use it too often, and this completely cuts off all deliberation over the law, or you, you can actually use it too infrequently because it's like a nuclear option that you don't want to deploy. And so Madison says we gave the, the president a qualified veto. And then he says, why we can make up for the absence of the absolute veto um, with uh, by connecting what he says, the weaker department with the weaker branch of the stronger department. So that they will uh, work together against whatever is the stronger branch of the stronger department. So I always ask my students, which is the weaker branch of the stronger department? And they always say the, the House of Representatives, because they're all inclined to think that the Senate is the really powerful part of Congress and the House is weak. And Madison says, he's telling you that that's not true. The House is the much more powerful uh, part. And so when you read that whole paragraph, right, you think of all the ways the Senate and the president are connected. The vice president presides over the Senate, breaks ties. The Senate confirms appointments. The Senate uh, ratifies treaties. It's pretty clear that they want the Senate and the president to actually be working together. And the one branch that never shows up in that paragraph is the judiciary. So whenever I teach this paragraph, then I erase the triangle that they've all drawn. And I draw a three-part triangle with the Senate, the House, and the president. And I think that's the actual checks and balances we have in our system. I don't think the courts play a role at all in Madison's theory of the separation of power or, or of the checks and balances. It's actually three parts of a triangle, but but it's House, Senate, and President. And then the joke is always, since I don't know geometry, you know, it's not a right triangle. It's one of those other kinds of triangles. I think it's an isosceles triangle, right, where the Senate and the President are closer and the House is all the way over here. So uh, I, I tend to think, actually, the, the judiciary is not even really part of the checks and balances. Uh, judicial review is kind of obliquely maybe there in the Constitution. It's not quite clear. So I don't know. What do you think of, of that whole idea? Well, I, actually, there's a couple of points, too, I would I would agree with. I mean, one is that I actually, um, I think this is di a little different from the point that you're bringing up in terms of separation of powers. One of the things I 
to have a reservation about in Madison's discussion of the relationship of the branches is Madison does always assume that the legislative branch is the dominant branch, the primary branch of government. And part of that comes from his experience of looking at the state constitutions where you did have sort of artificial props that made the legislative branch uh, particularly dominant. And so what Madison tends to assume is, is that the legislative branch dominates because it's the most susceptible to majority rule. And majority rule is your your primary concern, right? That's where the real power lies. And so it's interesting, right, that in any debate, Madison is always kind of late to see the role of the executive um, uh. you know, uh, uh, in the Constitutional Convention debates. He's sort of late to see the importance, right, that the role of the executive branch can play. Um, in the first Congress, he does come to see the importance of the uh, executive and particularly the executive having control over the bureaucracy and the administration. But he's always kind of a latecomer to the executive because I think he thinks that the legislature is the more predominant branch because it's more responsive to uh, majority rule. And I'm not really sure that that's actually uh, the case. Certainly, I think the evolution of American government in the 20th century bears that out, and that is, is that the president really plays um, a much more prominent role in national attention uh, than the uh, than the legislature. The other thing, too, is, is that I actually, make, uh, Joe, I think makes a great point about the judiciary. Um, I do think, though, this is also a prejudice of Madison's, um, and that is Madison does rarely ever sees a role for the judiciary. So, uh, for instance, right, when um, in the Constitutional Convention, he doesn't seem to think of the judiciary as playing a primary role in judicial review. Instead, he's got his council of revision where a certain number of judges would meet with the president to review the constitutionality of laws before they're passed. Um, And then, right, in the debates over the Bill of Rights, well, in a correspondence with Thomas Jefferson over the Bill of Rights, um, it's Jefferson that points out that the Bill of Rights could be useful because the courts would enforce them. And Madison never really sees a role for the courts, right, when it comes to the enforcement of, of rights and the Bill of Rights. So he, there's a certain prejudice on, uh, of Madison when it comes to actually seeing how uh, these various elements play out. I was going to ask you, Joe, too, uh, the, you know, th- thinking about the role of the judiciary, right, would be uh, important, particularly to our next document, right, where by the early 20th century, <laughs> the judiciary does actually play a very, a very prominent role mm-hmm. in the uh, uh, in the political system to the chagrin of uh, FDR. And um, I, you know, I thought always thought that knowing something about you know the court packing plan in 1936, right or 37, really would never do me much good as a except <laughs> for an interesting antiquated point. But now, you know, it, yeah. it's all the rage, right? I I got a I got I, I actually got a call, you know, uh, about a few months ago to go on television to talk about the Judicial Reorganization Act. I I never thought of what I do. Uh, in my classes is necessarily always useful to the immediate present, but I, you know, that I was, I was in big demand, yeah. um, but I wanted, I, I was, I want, uh, I was going to uh, turn to another question about the judicial reorganization act. And that is to think about, right. What are the, what are the merits or demerits, right. Of uh, court 
start packing, right? In light of the uh, in light of what occurred, right, uh, uh, with the uh, Roosevelt administration in '37. Yeah, I mean, I guess it follows from what I've said about Madison's view the separation of powers that court packing is totally on the table, right? Because the courts are always, you know, they're sort of like the weakest of the three branches. We shouldn't really treat them in the sort of sacred as the sacred body that uh, I think we often treat the court as today, and so. Um, you know, playing around with the number of justices. First of all, the Constitution seems to invite that by not setting the number, yeah, which would be pretty easy to set. You know, it'd be easy for the framers to say it'll be nine justices or seven or twelve or whatever. Um, so, you know, the Constitution seems to invite that kind of wrangling over the composition of the courts. Um, the problem I have with FDR's fireside chat, and this is just, uh, you know, anybody who reads the Federalist just like skin crawls when you read about the metaphor here. Right. And so I mean, this sort of jump, jumps out, jumps off the page, but I think we still need to draw attention to it, uh, is the, this is now the third page of this, um, packet, right. Uh, Last Thursday, this is FDR. I described the American form of government as a three-horse team provided by the Constitution to the American people so that their field might be plowed. The three horses are, of course, the three branches of government. Two of the horses are pulling in unison today. The third is not, right? So, like, nobody can read Federalist 51 and say, yeah, this is a, you know, this is a chariot with three horses, and you got to get them all going in the same direction, right? And so I'm fine with playing around with the composition of the courts, but the idea that you know, this is in order to make them all work together, right? And that's that's sound cost, American constitutional theory. Yeah, I don't. I have a, I have a concern about saying we're going to do this sort of thing so that the courts will follow along with the other branches of the government. But that said, I actually think um, uh, the court packing, you know, um, kinds of schemes are perfectly within constitutional bounds. And this gets to a broader, you know, question about about American government today, but. I get the sense that people think American politics is kind of spiraling out of control and the the sort of constitutional hardball is really nasty. But actually, when you look historically, some of the things that they were willing to do, even at the founding era, impeach Supreme Court justices, um, yeah. uh, you know, play around with the Electoral College after an election has taken place. Right. Uh, that's Hamilton's attempt in 1800 to get John Adams the presidency. You know, we look back at these things as if they are just way out of bounds today. But I actually think we have a much more narrow view of what's constitutionally acceptable. So, so the the strategy or like the the proposal by FDR, I think, is not so much out of bounds. But I don't, I really don't like the reasoning that he uses yeah. to justify it. Well, and I mean, I wonder too with FDR. So one of the arguments, right, historically, is is that FDR just approached it in the wrong way. And that was he, you know, he presents it as a sort of mundane reform, right? And that is, you know, these elderly justices they just can't get their work done, so we're going to appoint, you know, somebody one new justice for every justice that's seventy, right? Uh, which uh, Hughes later, Chief Justice Hughes later points out, just means more work for the for the court. But you know, yeah. the, he presents it in sort of this really, you know, anodyne, mundane way. And then later on, he real, after the backlash, he presents right uh, a much more robust uh, argument right in the Constitution Day speech right that mm-hmm. you know really in some ways the problem with the court is is that it just doesn't keep up with the times right I you know I, I do wonder right had he been more upfront at the beginning about what he's attempting to achieve if the uh, if there would have been less 
backlash because it did it did really hurt him right um i mean even some of his strongest supporters like mm-hmm. bert Wheeler and others right bailed on him uh with the uh with the judicial reorganization act but the yeah it, i wonder is would the is the american was the backlash the product of simply bad political strategy or was it the view of Americans that this is not how you should view the the nature of the the balance between the branches that ultimately yeah. the court has to be the umpires and you can't tinker with uh, with the umpires right yeah i mean i think there's so much uh, to say about this you know episode in american political history i mean i think one of the things that stands out to me is that fdr has some factual questions potentially wrong or maybe obviously wrong. The first is that the courts are out of control and that he's sort of making an oblique reference here, I think, to the Lochner period, right? So he says, um, for nearly 20 years, there was no conflict between the Congress and the court, but since the rise of the modern movement for social and economic progress, the court has more often boldly asserted a power to veto law. So, you know, this is the idea that starting with Lochner versus New York and then extending through the New Deal, the courts have been conservative and they've stood in the way of all of the things that the progressives and FDR wanted to do. And of course, revisionists have come along since then and said, if you actually look at the number of laws that the courts struck down during this period, it was pretty small. And almost everything that the progressives wanted to do got through. Yeah. But it's just the National Industrial Recovery Act, which of course is like, you know, a really, really bold <laughs> law, right? Like let let industry cartels make their own rules and regulations to set their own prices and the president approves them. And it's just fair competition. And, you know, the court striking that down was somehow, you know, trying to like get rid of the entire New Deal or something like that. And I think so FDR is presenting this as, you know, this one horse has just really gotten unruly and out of hand and it's causing all kinds of mischief. I mean, I'm not sure that that's factually true. Um, And then secondly, he acts as if the Congress is a horse that's right along with the president. And what he's about to find out is that that's not true at all either. So, (laughs) like, you know, this the the hundred days, right, and the sort of like blitz of legislation that he gets very quickly through Congress, I think kind of deludes FDR that he has restructured the separation of powers so that the president is now in charge. And he sees any opposition, however small, as a threat to that sort of presidential system that he's constructed. And, you know, Congress after 1936, sure, the Democratic majorities are huge, but the Democratic majorities are based on a Southern conservative Democratic block that, of course, is ready to oppose FDR on the Fair Labor Standards Act. Uh, is He has to go into the South in 38 to purge all of the Democrats who were opposed to him. So, he sort of confuses himself about how much power he actually has and how much support he actually has here. I think that's one of the critical mistakes that FDR makes uh, at this point. And then I guess the second thing, and this really draws back to um, the, the debate in Federalist 48 um, about why Madison thinks that the the Congress will be the most powerful branch. Um, and you sort of criticize Madison for not seeing that the executive actually is going to be more powerful. One of the reasons Madison says Congress will be more powerful is because they have a supposed uh, connection to the people. So, you know, in in 1840, you never really saw the president, but your member of Congress was really closely tied to you. So in any fight between Congress and the president, you sided with Congress. Yeah. Today, of course, that's completely changed. And how could Madison 
have seen that, you know, television or radio in the case of FDR was going to allow the president to actually become closer to the people than their own member of Congress. So I wonder if Madison's statement about the legislature is it's it's right in 1788. It's just not right once you hit modern technological changes like television, radio and you know so on. Well, and I think that goes uh, as well to the, the uh, to the kind of fallout from the court packing plan. So, you know, even though I, I, I agree with Joe that the number of cases was small um, and, uh, you know, which, it, you know, the court was not regularly striking down everything. Um, it, it did strike down these big programs, right? The Agricultural Adjustment Act and then IRA on these broad principles, right? Uh, it's particular interpretation of the taxing and spending clause and it's particular interpretation of uh, legislative power. So with the NIRA, right, with the National Industrial Recovery Act, it struck that program down on the non-delegation doctrine um, and that Congress, great, cannot delegate uh, its power, right, to another body, like in the case of the trade associations. And a principle like that has broad, potentially broad applications, right, for Congress that, you know, particularly during the New Deal, when you, you know, you you have this perception, right, that there's an economic emergency, you know, Congress's view seems to be, let's find somebody else to deal with these, with the minutia of these problems. So the, the threat of having those things struck down under the broad principles like the non-delegation doctrine, or narrow interpretation of the tax, the general welfare provision of the taxing and spending clause. The perception is is that that could have a very negative effect, right, on Congress's capacity to legislate during the oh. during the New Deal. So, with I mean, in some ways, FDR actually does sort of succeed in the end, and that is the threat of court packing does lead to a more amenable judiciary. Exactly uh, how it's yeah, about yeah. how amenable. That judiciary really is. It does, it's certainly, you know, by the time you get to cases like uh, Wicker v. Filburn, right, <laughs> the court, you know, it's not really concerned wait, with these narrow doctrines of federalism or anything anymore. The, uh, you know, Congress has a lot more, a lot broader scope, right, uh, to do things right that we might call uh, 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 delegation of legislative power. Yeah. And so, the, the characteristic of the 20th century post New Deal, right, is Congress actually delegating a lot more power uh, to the executive office. Mm-hmm. Do you think that that's radically changed the nature of the way separation of powers works? And I happen to know that Joe Postel knows something about this because not only <laughs> does he have a book on bureaucracy, uh, but he has actually testified before Congress on mm-hmm. the. Uh, on this topic. So, Joe, I was going to ask you what you thought of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think you're right to hit on, I think, probably the most important issue that's affected the separation of powers in the last century, which is Congress writing statutes that really don't have laws in them by any ordinary or traditional definition of law, but more uh, assign the lawmaking power over to various administrative agencies, right? This This is the delegation of legislative power regardless of the old non-delegation doctrine that used to stand in the way. And so, of course, if members of Congress don't have to actually legislate anymore, they're going to do very different things, um, especially when they can get reelected by not legislating, but instead doing things like performing, uh, you know, hold committee hearings, don't actually vote on laws, but 
you know, cut YouTube clips, fundraise, do those kinds of things. And so, you know, everybody sort of dislikes Congress, but they still get reelected at 90% plus rates. And I think that has a lot to do with Congress not actually being the legislative body anymore, but much more of like a performing institution. So, um, you know, in FDR, you're right. Like that's, that's certainly a legacy of what FDR has done. Uh, and he wins that showdown, even though he loses the court packing fight somehow or other, you know, however we want to explain how that plays out, he eventually wins the battle over whether there's going to be a strict non-delegation doctrine or not. And no, I mean, the non-delegation doctrine, right, the doctrine that Congress cannot delegate, right, to another branch of government or to another body is legislative power uh, because of the the vesting clause of Article One vests legislative power uh, uh, in, con- uh, in, the, in the legislative branch. Because of that vesting, because because that power is vested in Congress, right? You have the non-delegation doctrine. But the thing is, is that every law, right, involves a certain um, that there's no matter how specific, right, your law is in terms of its regulatory uh, nature, it's always going to involve some scope of discretionary power for the executive in terms of enforcing that law. So is there is there any way to define that to put that into <laughs> channels? <laughs> We've been trying for eighty years and we haven't yeah. been able to do it. So I, actually, uh, gentlemen, can sure, I yeah. jump in real quickly. No, you're in charge here, so you can jump in anytime no, you want. I I think you two have just proved that the job of the moderator is obsolete now. <laughs> we can back and listen to to you two talk about this subject because it's, this has just been a fascinating conversation. But I. I do want to maybe take a couple of questions from our teacher audience sure. that has to do with some of the documents we're looking at and the, the the conversation that you two are having about those documents and the current state of the separation of powers. So we have uh, one member of our our audience who I, I assume is a teacher asked about that very question that you just brought up about the, the capacity uh, of the president to enforce the laws. Can he selectively decide what laws he's going to enforce? Does he have to faithfully execute all of the laws or just those that he agrees with? And how does that affect our understanding of the separation of powers? Mm. Yeah. That's a, David. <laughs> yeah, there's a, that's a very, very big question. So, I mean, the the if you look at the the role, so the executive's job is to faithfully enforce the law, right? So that that raises the question: Why is it that so many presidents don't enforce the law? Um, you know, why is it right that uh, they they don't prosecute this company or that company? And okay, part of the explanation t- tends to be political, right? But Still, the question is, why, why do they get away with that politics? And the, the fact of the matter is, is that when it, when it comes to the execution of a law, the executive still has to say, has to reconcile the enforcement of a particular law in a particular case with what is perceived as the intention or purpose of that law. And so that means, right, the executive always has to say, okay, you know, why was this law made, right? They've got to interpret it in order to decide whether or not enforcement of it in that particular instance serves the intention of the law. So the simplest example you could use is is this, right? And that is, look, if you're speeding uh, on uh, on a road, right, 
um, you're potentially jeopardizing public safety. An officer will pull you over and will likely give you a ticket for jeopardizing public safety because you're speeding. However, if you are going into labor, right, and trying to get to the hospital, it would be simply idiotic for the police officer to detain you and give you a ticket for speeding when you're attempting to get to the hospital. Now, how is it that the officer is able to make this distinction, right, and exercise this discretionary power? Well, the officer's question is, what is the purpose of the law? And the law was to prevent the endangerment uh, to other drivers. But the delivery, uh, uh, but someone, right, delivering a baby, right, that's, you know, that trumps, right, the the particular concern with public safety in this instance, and therefore wouldn't have been the intention of the law to enforce, right, this, right, in this particular circumstance, because that, 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 that can't be consistent at the end of the day with the general safety of the public. So every law requires some interpretation in terms of its intent in order to apply it. And this is what gives executives broad discretionary power. Also, too, the laws themselves right, tend to be broad in terms of their particular application. And so the executive has to ask the question, what is what was the intention? What was the purpose behind this law in order to be able to adequately enforce it? Right. So this is where that discretionary power of the executive comes from. Yeah, I mean, so the question then is, how far does the discretionary power extend? Right. I totally agree with the rationale in favor of discretion and the example you've given. I think we sort of would agree on how that should play out. But then the question is, what about refusing to enforce laws about immigration or refusing to force enforce basic laws about protection of citizens against assaults or theft or something like that. Um, and, you know, I think the argument David's making is that, um, I guess, a twofold argument. One is that emergencies sometimes mean that the law has to yield to the emergency. I think that's the case of labor, right? You say, like, well, the law is designed for public safety, but applying the law in this case actually is harmful to public safety. So, Uh, There you have something like the pardon power, right? The Constitution just gives the president the ability to essentially act outside of the law or to cancel the law with regards to pardons. Um, The other uh, kind of argument David is making here is more of like a discretionary argument, right? Laws are general. They need to be applied in particular cases. And so this requires prosecutors or enforcers to decide in particular cases, like, what do we do to take this general law and apply it to the particulars? And so... You always have some element of discretion, right? The cop can hit you with the radar gun, say that you're going 81 and say, ah, it's fine. No big deal. Go along or decide not to. Right. And we all kind of know, like, there's this little threshold. You can be outside of the law, but the prosecutor in that case or the the police officer in that case isn't going to turn it into a case. So, you know. That, I think, makes sense. But the problem here is what happens when you get into a situation where there's just sort of like wholesale refusal to enforce the law in every case whatsoever, right? So obviously that's not okay because we have a veto power in the Constitution. And the president can never sign a law and then just refuse to execute it. What's the point of the veto if a president could just by not executing the law at all veto it without sending it back to Congress, right? So I think there can't be a case in which the president just refuses to execute the laws. And the interesting thing here, and this ties back to some of the themes in the document collection, is that this has been a struggle between Congress and the president for a long time, right? Um, I'm thinking particularly of impoundment. 
Uh, so this is one of the things Richard Nixon and LBJ too does this, even though he's a Democrat dealing with the Democratic Congress. They just like take enormous housing programs and just refuse to spend any of the money that's actually been appropriated for it. I think Nixon canceled or impounded like 20% of the federal discretionary budget one year. <laughs> took, took a fifth of the federal discretionary budget and just said, nope, we're not spending it. And of course, you can't take a budget or an appropriation bill, sign the appropriation, and then say, okay, I didn't veto the appropriation for defense. I just am not spending any of that money. Um, and so Congress is perfectly within its rights to pass something like an impoundment act in which it says, okay, if you're going to not spend the money we've appropriated, you have to notify us. And then we have ways of like forcing you to do it, right? We can pass a very specific bill saying you must spend this amount of money on this. Um, That seems to be okay from a constitutional point of view. But the thing I think you learn from that is, you know, it's very different from today's dynamic where if the president refuses to enforce the law, the first thing everybody does is say, okay, we're going straight to court. We're going to let the courts settle this one. And Congress is going to sue the president, and then the Supreme Court is going to somehow settle that. No, I mean, the the old solution was Congress can get its act together well enough that it can force the president's hand rather than taking the president to court. And I think that's a huge difference between now and, say, 50 years ago. I mean, and Congress has actually tried, I mean, at least uh, in in the past 20 years, 20, 30 years, Congress has tried to come up with various new innovative tools by which, on the one hand, it seems to acknowledge it just can't help itself from delegating this legislative power to the executive branch, but on the other hand, trying to find new ways, right, of checking the executive. So one thing that you see continually today, right, is Congress attempting to use its oversight power Mm -hmm. uh, in order to be able to at least, you know, if they can't stop delegating, they can sort of embarrass, right, or try to publicly humiliate various members of the executive branch, right, for the uh, manner in which they've they've gone about enforcing the law or develop public policy about how uh, how laws get enforced. The the other innovative tool was that legislative veto, right? right. And you know the that I mean that that's a particularly interesting um, way of checking this. So the legislative veto was developed right, with the presumption that Congress just can't help itself, right? When it comes <laughs> to delegating legislative power, but Congress was insistent that this was in fact legislative power that it should control. And so one of the things that they came up with, right, was the idea that you could, uh, that the executive would act, right, in in these instances where Congress had given broad, given the executive branch very broad discretionary power, and then Congress could cancel that, right, cancel that action, so through a uh, through a legislative veto. So one of the interesting cases, right, that uh, where that. Uh, is challenge right is the immigration and naturalization services versus Chada, in which um, the case was right. Chada right had been a citizen of uh, had been uh, had, had was on an immigrant visa from Kenya. Uh, then Kenya goes through. He's here right. Kenya goes through a revolution right. They gain their independence right. Chada. Wants to go. It was planning on going back to Kenya, but Kenya won't have him. He's also too not a British citizen anymore, so he really has no place to go. And according to the uh, Immigration and Nationality Act, one of the provisions of it allowed the Attorney General to suspend the deportation of an individual. Uh, I think if they had resided here from seven years, right, been you know uh, acted right decently, had no criminal record. 
um, and faced extreme hardship and uh, if they uh, were deported. So the attorney general suspends Chada's deportation. And uh, then, right, uh, uh, the it says by a single house, right, so it's the House of Representatives, overturns, right, the decision of the attorney general through this mechanism we call the legislative veto. Uh, so it, was, it wasn't just Chada, it was a number of other uh, individuals. They overturned the... Uh, the um the the suspension by the attorney general. I mean, Joe, what do you think of the of it as a as a check? Yeah, so the legislative veto um, is all the rage these days. Yeah. Uh, if you go to constitutional law conferences or like there are some of these conferences, I think the American Constitution Society has had some interesting debates between people from like both sides of the political spectrum. Uh, about what can we agree on? And the one thing they can all agree on is we should have the legislative veto back. So Chad is this great case that very few people know about it. Very few people talk about it. It's kind of a technical separation of powers kind of case. But I think if I'm not mistaken, that's the one decision that invalidates more statutes than any other decision the Supreme Court has ever uh, handed down. In fact, it might even be the case that in that one case, they invalidated more statutes than any than if you added up all of the decisions of the Supreme Court to that date, wow! Uh, uh, over two hundred, over two hundred, right? Uh, over two hundred laws invalidated in one decision uh, because a legislative veto doesn't go through the House, the Senate, and go to the President for a signature. So um, it's violating Article One's legislative process, the presentment of bicameralism requirements. So uh, you know, obviously, I think if if what the legislative veto is is the passing of a law, then that's the correct decision. Um, but it's more like the rescinding of a decision by Congress. So is this really a law that is being passed? I guess that's the the fight in the case itself. Um, but I think the outcome was very unfortunate, right? It basically made it very difficult for Congress to reclaim authority and reclaim responsibility for these decisions, which then leads it to go down these other paths like oversight or budget appropriations or you know debt limit showdowns. We're like, maybe we can get something from the president in exchange for passing a debt limit increase. Um, and those are very imperfect tools for giving Congress authority over what's going on in the bureaucracy. So I think almost everybody across all of these parts of the political spectrum seem to agree that the legislative veto, if we had it back, would help a lot. Just two last very specific points about this short points. One is uh, Lewis Fisher has written a bunch on this, and he said legislative vetoes are still all over the place. Uh, basically, these committees can still kind of like uh, rescind certain very specific spending items or something like that. So we still have somehow the legislative veto or some weird penumbra of the legislative veto after after Chata. And the other point is there's a, a version of Chata or sorry, a version of the legislative veto that complies with Chata now. That's the Congressional Review Act. And this this law passed in 1996 where Congress says. Within 60 days of a rule going into final effect, we, the House, the Senate, can pass a disapproval resolution. And the president, if it's signed by the president, then the rule gets rescinded. Of course, the problem here is you have to send it to the president, and presumably the president has approved of the rule going forward anyway. So (laughs) this is happening right now with two really important rules. This doesn't get a lot of attention, but the first is uh, the Labor Department Uh, The Biden Labor Department promulgated a rule saying that uh, mutual fund managers could use ESG funds in their mutual funds. 
Um, this is a hugely controversial subject, of course. Uh, ESG uh, funds are these environmental, social, and governance funds that basically say, we're going to factor in sort of more like political criteria in terms of which companies we want to invest in, which ones we don't. So fossil fuel companies, you know, wouldn't be investable, but solar companies would be under these funds. And and mutual fund managers put your funds into these funds instead of like the pure profit motive funds. The Labor Department said that they could do that. And the Congress actually disapproved of it through the CRA. And if you're asking the question, how did the Senate vote to rescind the rule? Um, the answer is that because Senator Fetterman and Senator Feinstein were in the hospital, uh, the the Senate was actually under a Republican majority. Um, and, of course, Manchin provided an extra vote for the Republicans. So the, the Senate actually disapproved of that rule 50 to 46. And the next one is going to be on this uh, uh, rule under the Clean Water Act, the WOTUS rule, Waters yeah. of the United States rule. Um, they're going to use the CRA, presumably, to go after that, too. So. That version of the legislative veto, of course, these these rescissions then or these you know withdrawals go to the president's desk and Biden just vetoes it. So yeah. Biden actually just signed his first veto, which was of the disapproval under the CRA of the ESG. So now instead of the legislative veto, we have this you know Congress goes through the whole process of saying we disapprove of this rule, we're not letting, we're canceling the rule, and then the president just vetoes the the resolution, and that's the end of it. Yeah, I think I, th- I can only think in in terms of uh, since since the inception of that law, I believe the inception of that law was under uh, uh, was when Gingrich was Speaker of the yeah. House. That was part of the contract with America. Right. The, um, I can only think of uh, once or twice that was ever successful. Right. Once yeah. I think during the Trump administration when they rescinded a rule from the Consumer Finance Protection Board on um, uh, payday lenders. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was just because, right, you had a switch in Congress, right, this Republican, right, Republican president yeah. after Obama administration era uh, regulatory rule. So the yeah, the chances of it working, right, are very limited. Whereas in, in Chada, right, the, the the there you have just a single house, right, uh, a single house legislative veto, which, you know, given how rare the CR, the Congressional Review Act uh, has been used. You can see what the advantages, right, of a single house. Yeah. Uh, I I actually I, I think I disagree with Joe right about the the, the decision in that case, hmm. and that is I actually think the outcome was right, and the reasoning was horrible. Um, hmm. you know the 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 argument of Berger in that case is is that look, you know, if you change someone's deportation status, that is a legislative act. And that has to go through bicameralism and right. presentment to the president. If if that were the case, right, there's one major thing that Berger has overlooked in the case, and that is that somebody else changed Chada's deportation status, mm-hmm. and that was the attorney general. Right? So when the attorney general, acting according to the statute, suspended Chada's deportation, was that a legislative act? Right. Yeah. And, I mean, I think Berger just gets it wrong. The reasoning why this is uh, what why con- what Congress is doing is unconstitutional. He assumes that they're acting legislatively, and that therefore, right, they have to go through bicameralism and presentment to the president. Um, I would have argued, right, that the reason that the legislative veto in that case is unconstitutional is because Congress, right, had assumed executive power 
right, than uh, exercising legislative power. That is, the statute gave the attorney general that discretionary choice about how to enforce the law, and then Congress usurped executive power by intermeddling in how the executive carried that act out. I I think that's important, too, in terms of the decision that Berger, uh, the, the end of Berger's decision, and that is Berger Right. Gives this, you know, says, right, you know, you have to follow the Constitution. This is unconstitutional. But then he gives the most pathetic defense I have ever seen of the Constitution. (laughs) He says it may be slow. It may be inefficient. But that's just how our founders. That's what we got. And you're like, wow, that's inspiring. Right. (laughs) But the thing is that what Berger, I think, doesn't see is, is that actually having an executive that can discern when to enforce this law and when not to is actually a great advantage, right? That is, the executive has a knowledge of, can be, can determine, okay, look, this is a case where an individual really will deal with some serious hardship by being mm-hmm. deported. That, because the executive has to be concerned with questions of national security, right, and uh, a uniform enforcement of the immigration law, it makes sense that the executive has discretionary power. That makes for actually a fairly quick and efficient government. And I think Berger just doesn't doesn't appreciate that because he tends to think about the Constitution the way that I think many people today do, and that is it was intentionally designed to be inefficient. Right. It was intentionally designed to be um, uh, to retard. Right. uh, uh, Quick government action. But in fact, you know, if you think about the role of the executive in the discretionary enforcement of the law, that's what allows government to be efficient. You know, different circumstances require different responses. And when Congress gives a broad power to the executive to do that, oftentimes it's because that law has to be enforced depending on the circumstances. And it seems to me that that actually is uh, an efficient way of, of running a government. Um, and it's one that respects right, the role of separation of powers. Congress is good at legislating, but the executive is good at making you know, the kind of decisions you have to have in those particular instances. Yeah, um, on, on that point, ahead, if I Jason. could just jump in. Uh, your conversation has inspired several of our teacher participants here to ask questions about uh, Theodore Roosevelt and his understanding of the executive and how that has helped uh, change uh, our understanding of the separation of powers. I know we didn't have any documents from TR, like his stewardship theory of the American presidency, for example, but just on this point of the executive's role in the separation of powers, how did TR help to change the terms of that debate? Particularly, again, I've got two or three questions here from different teachers on TR. Um, how did the, the power of the bully pulpit, TR's understanding of the presidency, how has that shifted the power and the presence of the president uh, in terms of his relationship to the other branches? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, interestingly, this the conversation leading up to this question makes me realize something I've never realized about David and I and where we kind of disagree. I think I, this is correct, and uh, David can adjust this comment however he likes, but I think David is more friendly to executive power than I am, and I'm a little more friendly to legislative power than David is. So David likes to talk about all the advantages of executive power And I like to talk about all the advantages of legislative power. And so we tend to emphasize uh, different branches. And so my view of of, of Teddy Roosevelt is going to be a lot more, I think, um, negative than David's. 
I think I think Teddy Roosevelt is probably the first. You might throw Andrew Jackson into this conversation, into this mix. But I think he's the first president who asserts this new theory of executive power, right? That the president is the steward of the people, that the Constitution really only puts very specific and limited checks on presidential power. Anything that's not explicitly forbidden in the Constitution is allowed. And so, you know, um, he talks a lot about unilateral executive action that he takes uh, in areas that are gray areas in the law to set aside enormous parts of public lands um, and, to, and to really just uh, stretch the outer boundaries of legality in order to to, to get things done. Um, the place where I think this is even more obvious is in the 1912 election. Uh, so, you know, Roosevelt doesn't win that election, but he asserts, like his new nationalism theory says explicitly, right, the new nationalism regards the executive as the steward of the people. Um, and interestingly here, David, I'd love to hear what you have to say about this. Um, right. Roosevelt basically in 1912 says, I know that I used to say we need to bust up the trusts, but at this point, the new nationalism accepts the inevitability of the trusts. And, uh, we basically have to now regulate them rather than, um, than bust them up. And so Taft is the great trust buster in American history, not TR, in spite of the fact that TR has this great reputation for being the trust buster. And what what Roosevelt is saying essentially is that we think the executive now can join up with um, the trusts, regulate the trusts, but allow them to remain in existence. And we'll basically just kind of work together to ensure an orderly economy. Right. This will all be basically done through the executive branch. So that part, the executive centered government is tied to the bully pulpit, is tied to the idea that the president is the kind of embodiment of, of the people can speak directly to them. Um, and then just the last point on this, uh, what is happening also during Roosevelt's time is that Congress is restructuring its own powers to get rid of its own party leaders. So the great uh, foil to Teddy Roosevelt was Joseph Cannon, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, who really did run what was going on in the House of Representatives. He was the czar of the House. That's what they called him at the time. And uh, Roosevelt had to basically negotiate with Cannon anytime he wanted to get something done. This really frustrated him, right, that the legislature still got to dictate terms to the executive over what the laws were going to be. What a quaint constitutional theory. <laughs> and, and so uh, the destruction of uh, party leadership in the House of Representatives opens the door for the president then to lead the legislative process. I, yeah, so I, I, I have a, diff- a very different take on TR. Um, Almost exactly the opposite of Joe in in, in, in every way here, and that is at, at the end of the day, I I do have some disagreements with with Tr, um, primarily because I think Tr has the right understanding of executive power for all the wrong reasons, um, and that is all right. So if you look at it, like, Tr's defense of his actions right are always based on uh, uh, his executive. Unilateral, especially his use of unilateral executive powers, is always based on what he calls the stewardship theory uh, of the executive. And that is the president just has to do whatever the president can do for the sake of the for the sake of the people. And he even has a sort of implied theory of uh, power, right, that, you know, that. It's not the power of the executive doesn't just come from the Constitution. It comes from the inherent notion of sovereignty. Right. And so he's looking you know, beyond the Constitution for some authority. Well, 
the problem with him is, is that he justified, always would justify his uses of unilateral executive action in terms of uh, claiming that he went beyond, some ways beyond the Constitution, or at least in the dark absa, uh, absence of explicit powers of the Constitution in order to do what he did. It turns out in almost everything he did, he actually had statutory authorization for what he did. So, like, for instance, when it came to, you know, these national preserves, the Antiquities Act, right, had actually given the president the authority to do exactly what he did. Now, did he really, you know, use it to the full tilt? Yes, but he used it to the full tilt within the statutory law. He canceled numerous, right, um, probably corrupt deals, right, that Congress had made with uh, Native American lands. But he actually had statutory authorization to do that. Everywhere he claims that he went beyond the uh, formal executive powers, he actually had statutory authorization to do what he did. So the thing is, is that in some ways he actually does, I think, the right thing for utterly the wrong, on the basis of the wrong reasoning. And so the problem today is, is that presidents often, or and scholars, often refer to his reasoning rather than the actual basis for his exercise of power. And that is, is that presidents today will often say, right, we're doing this because it's an emergency and it has to be done for the sake of the American people. And a lot of times presidents are actually perfectly authorized by statutory law to do what they're doing, but they won't use the statutory law as the authorization. Rather, they'll use this sort of vague assertion, right, that this is what what's necessary for the for the people. Hmm. So there's a lot of confusion today. And when presidents, right, like, you know, Biden right, himself had said, right, on a number of things, I can't do that. It's not statutorily authorized. People say, well, that's ridiculous that you would regard statutory authorization as an obstacle to doing what the people, uh, what the American people need. So in some ways, it's true that TR has done a lot of harm, but more in terms of how we think hmm. about executive power rather than the actual basis for using executive power. So if you look at things like the Antiquities Act uh, and various uh, also two conservation uh, measures, right, that TR took, the fact of the matter is, is that Congress had statutorily authorized the president to wield unilateral executive power precisely because the administration of those laws required a case-by-case judgment. And therefore, Congress made a pretty good decision. And that is, they said, look, we can't write regulations, right, that cover every instance. Therefore, we have to give the executive some discretionary power. And in some ways, I think we would be a lot better off in terms of executive power if presidents, if presidents, right, made the case that the statute is the basis, right, for the action, rather than some vague assertion of inherent powers on on behalf of the people. I I agreed with more of what David just said than I thought I would when he started talking. Um, in other words, if if Roosevelt had been more like Lincoln, when Lincoln defends the actions that he takes with Congress out of session right at the onset of the Civil War. And he says, okay, here's the legal authority for what I did here. He's the, here's the legal authority for what I did here. I'm justifying my claim or my decisions under the law. And instead of doing that, which David's arguing TR could have done, 
plausibly, um, TR just basically makes up a theory which says, I can just sort of stretch the law to the very, very outer limits. And so that's what I did. And so that lays the precedent for what comes comes later. And I would just point out one thing real quick in terms of an example Joe brought up, and that is the enforcement of the Sherman Antitrust Act. I actually think that TR had a better understanding of how that law should have been enforced. There had always been an understanding, right, called in common law called the rule of reason, that you make a distinction between good trusts and bad trusts, right? Um, the you know ones that are use artificial means to uphold to maintain their monopoly versus ones that simply dominate the market because of their uh, efficiency and superiority. And that was that was going to be uh, TR's justification for uh, TR's distinction that he was going to make in terms of the enforcement of that law. And that's actually a pretty good, I think, distinction about how you go about enforcing that law. Taft, on the other hand, thought, look, if they're a trust and they satisfy it in any way, I'm going to enforce it. And that actually would have led, I think, to bad economic policy. So the president right has, I think, discretionary judgment in terms of how that law has to be enforced because they have to ask the question, what is the overall intent of the something like the Sherman Antitrust Act? And I think making that distinction right helps. The problem with TR is, is that he would just, you know, make it a personal and personalize it, right, rather than actually making a base, making an argument that this is part of his Article II powers. Hmm. Can I just say one thing about this exchange that I think has drawn out like a, a more fundamental question that really you see throughout the entire history of the documents we have on separation of powers, and that is which branch represents the American people? Um, you know, the older traditional understanding is that Congress represents the people. And even though it ne- no single person in Congress represents all of the people, that the Congress collectively represents all of the people, more effectively because the people are diverse, they have a lot of different interests, and so you have a whole bunch of different representatives to represent that diversity. Uh, so there's a, the advantage of that. It represents the true diversity of the American people, but it also there's no single person that represents the whole. It's parochial. Congress is a parochial institution. And the progressives really disliked, I think, this older theory of representation. They liked the contemporary theory, which is, I think this is the contemporary theory, which is the president represents the people. Congress represents all the little narrow, I mean, what does Congress really do? Uh, It represents all of the nasty special interests. And so the president is the representative of the public interest against all of the private interests in Congress. And therefore, when TR does all of these things, he's doing it on behalf of the people, the public interest against the corruption of Congress. And I think that tension in the separation of powers and how we've thought about that question has really uh, affected which side of that has the the greater balance of power. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. And that leads to a larger question, I think, that a lot of our teacher audience members are are, uh, asking about. Uh, what is the current relevance of the separation of powers debate today? We looked at a, uh, a Supreme Court case from 1988, Morrison v. Olson. Um, the Supreme Court even today is dealing with this question in some upcoming cases. I think there's one on the docket, uh, Community Financial Services Association of America versus the Consumer Financial uh, Protection Bureau, uh, which the court just granted cert to back in, in February. What is what is the relevance of this debate for today? Well, I mean, the, the, the case that you bring up right there, right, is really, I mean, really interesting. And that is, 
the you know in that case the the consumer finance protection board it's a very innovative regulatory agency. It has very, very broad scope of jurisprudence. Right? It, it regulates basically all financial industries that are not large banks. And the um, what uh, they they are so they they had a single director that until a recent court case uh, was not removable by the president. Court struck that down as unconstitutional. So you have this, this this director, right, appointed by the president with the advice and consent of the Senate, but the president couldn't fire them. Then, right, they also, too, do, unlike almost all, unlike most federal agencies, they do not depend upon their appropriations from Congress. Rather, they receive, they make a request for funding from the um Federal Reserve, which, you know, operates right around 50 to 80 billion a year. So that's a, it's a big chunk of change. Um, <laughs> and they just make requests, right, uh, for the funding that they that they need for the year. So they're neither really, in some ways, they weren't politically accountable to the president and they weren't politically accountable to Congress. And that raises serious questions, right, about the separation of powers. What if you could just start creating regulatory agencies, that neither answered to the president nor to Congress, right? Where do they where do they exist? And this is I think I think this is a, a serious problem today, and it will become very attractive to create institutions like this when you want to see a particular ideological agenda uh, ingrained in stone and uninfluenced uh, uninfluenced by future political actors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, just to. I would just echo what David's just said by just adding one or two small points, one of which is um, the court has become increasingly interested in policing the separation of powers as Congress has become increasingly incapable of playing much of a role in these disputes. Um, So because Congress is really not able to get its act together to pass laws or to restrain the administrative agencies, increasingly litigation has been the means of trying to put limits on the kinds of agencies we can create and where they where they go. Um, and then the second point is um, just to, to more sort of uh, sharply say what David just said. Many people are concerned that we've created essentially a fourth, a headless fourth branch of government in America today. Um, these administrative agencies uh, it's not clear, clear where they belong. Are they in the executive branch? Are they adjuncts of the legislature? And uh, increasingly, there's concerns that we have done real damage to the separation of powers by allowing all of these powers to be consolidated in these kinds of institutions that are outside of the appropriations process. So they're less accountable to Congress, but they can't be fired by the president, and therefore they're not tied to the presidency either. And doesn't that mean then that these elections that we have are just kind of replacing the people in the parts of the government that aren't making any decisions, while the people in the government who are making the really important policy decisions just keep churning out those decisions as career uh, bureaucrats without any real accountability. So there's increasing concern about that. But but again, this isn't concern that's being expressed too much through Congress as a whole. It's, It's maybe some members of Congress are talking about this, but not Congress as a whole. And instead, this is mostly the subject now of a lot of law review articles and uh, litigation filed in all of these various circuit courts, making their way up to the Supreme Court. So you could see major changes in the separation of powers, but it will be done through this new way of litigating our way through that that controversy. 
Well, All I'll, right. Well, we, we're down to our. Yeah, please, yeah. David, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, also, too, the other thing, the other major development that's taking place, I think, on the court is, is that you're beginning to see the court, right, confront the non-delegation issue. Now, they aren't calling it that because it's yeah. a little too controversial to refer to it. But you'll see uh, uh, things called like the major questions doctrine, right, or vagueness. Uh, if a law is too vague, they say it violates the vagueness, <laughs> vagueness doctrine. I mean, these are subtle ways of forcing the court to eventually come to terms, right, with this with this non-delegation issue. So while it has not been ever been part of the formal court's jurisprudence explicitly uh, since 1935, now it is becoming uh, beginning to become a serious issue. The court eventually will have to confront. Yep. All right. We are down to our final minute or two. Uh, the conversation has just flown by this morning. Uh, it, it tends to always do that when you're you're having interesting conversations with interesting people. But I'm I was wondering if either or both of you could could recommend a book, a primary or a secondary source for our audience. Of course, besides the book that you two uh, are just finishing up uh, for the uh, for the Ashbrook Center, the core documents collection on separation of powers, which I believe will be available later in this summer. Um, is there another book that our teacher audience should check out if they're interested in thinking about this question further? Go ahead, David. I recommend Joe Postel's book on the bureaucracy. Right? <laughs> if you want to see a great exploration of these issues, right, definitely I would strongly, strongly, strongly recommend reading uh, reading Joe's book on the bureaucracy. I, I learned a great deal from it, and it really does actually confront these various separation of powers issues. Oh, well, that's so kind, David. Thanks. Um, I think I would recommend an article uh, that touches on an issue we have not even really addressed, but it's a really important one. Uh, it's by Richard Pildes, uh, who's a professor at NYU Law School. It's called Separation of Parties, Not Powers. And the argument he gives there is political parties actually collude across the branches of government, and this weakens the separation of powers. And so if you really want a strong separation of powers, you have to think about how political parties have weakened the checks and balances, right? Uh, Democrats work together in the House, Senate, and the president. And so parties have, have done some re, uh, sort of, I guess, damage to the separation of powers. And uh, that article, I think, is a really nice way of thinking about that question. Okay, some fantastic recommendations there. Uh, Thank you to, to our panelists, uh, as well as to all of our teacher participants out there in our uh, virtual audience for some great questions this morning. Um, as a reminder, within the next week or so, you will be receiving an email that will include links to today's readings, suggested further readings on today's topic, uh, and a link to this archive webinar. We hope you will share this information with your colleagues as well as on social media. If you have enjoyed today's webinar, please consider taking an online graduate course in our MAG program, our Master's of Arts in American History and Government program. Uh, both of these fine gentlemen teach in that program. Uh, you can find more information about online course offerings, uh, as well as many, many, many other resources for teachers at teachingamericanhistory.org or TAH.org. This is the eighth episode of American Controversies. The program will return one last time on May 20th for our final episode of the season. Uh, and our question, our guiding question for that session will be, what are the limits of executive power? 
one of those questions that we dealt with today, but we're really going to do a deep dive into uh, next month. I want to uh, thank uh, both of these fine gentlemen uh, for joining us this morning, as well as Amanda for stepping in uh, as moderator. Uh, thank you all for, for being here today. That was a fantastic conversation.